Welcome to episode 815 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello, Sam. Yo. And today we are previewing our preview series, so our fourth annual 30-team podcast season preview series starts tomorrow with the Philadelphia Phillies, and it's going to work roughly the same way as it's worked the last three years. Sam and I are going to interview the author of the BP annual essay for each team. We're going in order of Pakoda projected win totals from worst to first, which is why we're starting with the Phillies. And if we stay on that schedule and continue to do our regular email shows on Wednesday, which we will, then we should wrap up on April 1st, which is the Friday before opening day. So in the past, we have had helpers with this series. We've had a second segment in each show where someone from Baseball Prospectus interviews someone who covers the team in question. And this year, we are getting assistance from Jeff Paternostro and George Bissell. And so they are joining us here today. We thought this would be a a way for the listeners to get to know them a little bit because they're going to be hearing a bunch of them in the next several weeks. So hello, George. Hey, Ben. Hey, Sam. Thanks for having me on. We are happy to. George is a fantasy writer at Baseball Prospectus. If you listen to the BP Fantasy Podcasts, you know him. He's on There Is No Offseason and Flags Fly Forever. And Jeff Paternostro. Hello, Jeff. Hello again. And Jeff writes primarily about prospects at Baseball Perspectives. He also writes about the Mets at Amazing Avenue and does a podcast there at Amazing Avenue Audio. And he's been on the podcast before. So Jeff is going to take the NL teams and George is going to take the AL teams. And they've already gotten started scheduling and doing some interviews. And we are Really happy to have them. So thank you guys for helping us out with this. Thus far, no one has been crazy enough to help us out with this more than one year. (laughs) The first year that we did this, Pete Barrett was the guy who did our second half interviews. And he is now uh, working in in marketing and and advertising. And in 2014, Nick Wheatley-Schaller helped us out. He's about to start an internship with a major league team. And last year, Sahadev Sharma helped us and He has moved on from BP to write about Chicago sports at the Athletic Chicago. So no one's been crazy enough to do it back-to-back years except for me and Sam. But hopefully splitting the the load a little bit will make it a little easier for you because it can be a, a grind to do 30 teams in not much more than 30 days. So... We uh, solicited some questions. We're just going to do a regular email show episode with Jeff and George. And since they sort of have specialties that are different from ours, I asked for prospect questions and fantasy questions. No, should I sign this 15-year-old Dominican for my dynasty team? And no, should I make this 10-player trade with the following categories? We still have some standards and we're not going to we're not going to answer those kinds of questions. But we got, I think, some interesting questions. So I'll start with one primarily for Jeff, although I think anyone can dive in. And uh, this is a prospect related question. It's from a listener named Paul. And he says some questions came to mind after seeing a tweet from a non BP Internet prospect guy 
some folks were complaining about a recently published prospect list. Amazing that. (laughs) Right. And he stated that there is real damage done to players by bad rankings, like a decrease in autograph and promotion money opportunities, especially for players that didn't get the big signing bonuses. So the questions are, do internet prospect rankings really have a real world influence, either in terms of teams valuations of players, public relations efforts, or in players income opportunities? If so, is there a possibility for shady dealing by teams to get their players ranked better? And are there safeguards against that from influential sites? And lastly, is there a problem with a revolving or a one-way door in which prospect writers either come from teams or seek team jobs after putting out influential rankings? It could be similar to politicians or government regulators who leave office or the government agencies only to take on big money jobs inside the industries they were recently just regulating. So you can tackle any or all parts of that question. This is a great question, and I've got to be careful how I answer it. Very, very careful. (laughs) Um, So I'll work backwards a little bit. Anytime when I approach my prospect list that I've been doing at BP, I just finished up the Colorado Rockies one that will go up later in the week. I am very careful to keep in mind the audience, I guess. Um, I do find some places you get the sense that people are writing for the cross checker they really want to be working for and not for a more generalist audience. I think that's something uh, worth keeping in mind as a prospect writer. It has become, and BP certainly is the the prime example of this, the brain drain of baseball prospectus on the prospect team over the last few years is obvious. Uh, a lot of writers have gone into player development roles in baseball. And part of that is because they do really good work. And part of that is because they have a portfolio of really good work they can show to those cross-checkers and directors of player development and people in those kind of positions. There's a known body of work there. You're not pulling a 26-year-old career minor leaguer off the streets. Well, he may have more professional experience than your average BP writer, certainly more than me, God knows. He hasn't really done the job. It's a, it's a job. There's a series of skills you need to have that don't that do interact in many ways with the skills of playing baseball but there are different life skills i guess would be the best way to put it or soft skills it's a different lifestyle as far as teams is sort of being a quid pro quo agreement i mean you hear stuff like that there's i don't really want to get into it i don't like doing that kind of media criticism but you'll, you'll hear certain certain teams are better at promoting their prospects to a local and national audience, especially teams that might be rebuilding. That's just good PR. If you're the Chicago Cubs from a couple years ago, and there's not much to sell on the field, there's certainly a benefit in selling the future. Um, say, oh, no, just just wait, it'll be okay. In a couple years, we'll have Chris Bryant and Addison Russell and Kyle Schwarber. And then sometimes it works out like that. It's a, they were telling the truth, more or less. But it is, it is a little bit of a game. You got to keep that in mind. As for the players themselves, I mean, the, the guys with the fanny packs are always going to be there. I mean, they don't really even care who you are a lot of the times. Um, I got, uh, I was sitting behind home plate last year at a, at like a B-Mets Rock Hats game. And, uh, somebody came up to me, like, to get them to sign their card thinking I was Gabriel Yanoa, who is a Mets, uh, pitching prospect <laughs> of some, of some note, like a notable one, one that certainly has his own baseball cards. And you, Jeff Paternostro, were mistaken for this Mets pitching prospect? 
mistaken for the player who is roughly four inches taller than me and Dominican. I assume they thought he was charting. I had a clipboard. I had a, like something. They might have thought I was I was charting. I mean, I was dressed very much not like. I mean, when players chart, they very much do not dress like I do when I am I don't play. I'm not wearing like a Nike snapback golf hat and like a pink popped up polo and like the hundred dollar jeans. <laughs> but it was funny because. Yeah, you know, I'm, I don't look like a six foot three, 20 year old Dominican pitcher, I think. But those guys will always be there. And it's not, it gets sort of into the nebulous world of do players read their own press and should they read their own press, especially at this level. So I may write something about, let's say, so let's say uh, Trevor Story, to use an example. Trevor Story has some approach issues, he's got some pop. He'll probably play in the majors for a while. If I have specific criticisms of, of Trevor Story's game and what he might need to do to improve or to reach that projection, should he be listening to me or should he be listening to his coaches in Albuquerque? I think the answer to that question should be fairly obvious. But you get, I get emails. I've gotten emails from mostly from their family members, I think more than the players themselves. But I don't think there's a prospect writer out there that hasn't gotten the ironic fave on Twitter when they write something less than flattering about a prospect. They all name search. They got nothing else to do at 4 p.m. before a, a game. They're going to search their name on Twitter. They're all there. And that's changed, especially in the prospect world in the last five years, I'd say. You know, when I first started writing about prospects, a lot of the prospects there in the early 20s, they weren't really on Twitter. But like every kid that comes up through high school and college now is on it, even if it's just a way to keep up with his buddies. But then he gets into this sort of professional environment and you could have a whole different podcast about how minor league baseball players should use Twitter and how they shouldn't. But yeah, they're gonna they're gonna name search for themselves, and they're gonna they're gonna find that you didn't think they looked great last night, or the fastball command wasn't there, and they generally won't engage. And it's not a fight you can win on any level uh, as a writer. I mean, it, you know, professional beat reporters can't win that fight with professional players. Yeah, you know, I'm not gonna be able to win it on Twitter.com. So it's it's a it's a world you kind of gotta feel your way through. There's a lot of different things going on, and that was a very deep. Not a deep question, but a very uh, complex question. Sort of the way the writer interacts with the team and with the player. I think to sort of uh, sum it up, I would say just just write what you see. That's sort of been my mantra over the years. If people are going to like it or not going to like it. You know, try to give the most accurate report you can and let the chips fall where they may. And if if teams come calling, they come calling. But I'm not going to pump a guy just to say. If he hits, oh look at look at me! I'm a I'm a great scout. You should hire me because I was on I guess to use a, a Mets example, Louis Carpio before anybody else. I I find the revolving door issue to be not quite that terrifying. Partly because I don't think that a club that's looking for somebody to hire from the public sphere is going to put sycophantic, uh, ethically compromised uh, writer uh, at the top of their that they're looking for. And so my guess is that it wouldn't do you much good if you were writing a top 10 list that was geared at making a front office happy. Now, I don't know, maybe there might be writers that would think that it would. And so that's an issue. I mean, I, I've been, I, I've told, you know, I've said about a thousand times that getting a journalism degree was a giant waste of, of time for me wanting to be a journalist. I wish I'd majored in something else. Uh, because you don't really learn much getting a journalism degree. But the things you do learn, the two things you do learn are uh, libel law and ethics. You at least learn what the ethics are. Whether you choose to follow them is up to you, but you learn what they are. And most uh, baseball writers don't come from a journalism education background. And so there is 
there is always a, a little bit of concern that there's uh, not quite the same uh, understanding of what the right ethics are, particularly with things like how to incorporate unnamed sources into your coverage and, and things like that. And it is always tricky anytime. I mean, I had an issue not, not that long ago where uh, a writer uh, was writing an article for BP and wondering whether it mattered that this writer had had interviewed with the club, I don't know, like a, a year earlier or something like that, and whether that was a potential conflict. And we had to figure out what to do about that. And the problem was that if you're looking for a job in the industry, whether you've interviewed with the club or not, you're always kind of interviewing with the club. Uh, and so there's an omnipresent conflict of interest uh, if that is what you're writing about. And so I think there's a risk, a danger, but for the most part, you just sort of have to trust that writers are going to be true to what they actually believe, that there isn't much gain uh, in skewing their coverage in order to please some potential future uh, employer, and that the work will largely speak for itself. You know, if it is the case the writing is compromised, it'll probably be clear, and then you can kind of act on it. So I'm not as worried about the revolving door thing. I am you know, constantly worried with myself and with anybody else that the fact that your sources or your subjects, I should say, are going to be reading what you write compromises it. There's a fine line between uh, wanting people to be accountable for what they write and then worrying that that accountability is going to water down what they're willing to say. I certainly feel that way all the time when I write, uh, if I know that the source of the subject is going to read it. Um, and other writers have talked about it too. So it's it's imperfect. I mean, you're never going to get past the uh fallibility of humans uh, when you're working in a human sphere. Yeah, I agree with everything Jeff said. And uh, to piggyback on a point that Sam made about taking sort of a journalistic approach to it, one of the things you also learn uh, when you're studying journalism is to use more than one source. I mean, like Jeff's talked about, if if you're hearing one thing from one scout or a cross-checker or someone's talking up one prospect, you have to go outside the organization and get multiple accounts from multiple sources in order to put your opinion together on a prospect. I don't think you can rely solely on one person's opinion. It's a, it's a number uh, of opinions that you want to draw when you're putting together a, a report on a player or a prospect list. I think that's an important thing that you have to do when you're putting together a list like that. Yeah, when I was at PP, and I'm, I'm sure now, there was always an effort to talk to team sources, but also sources outside the team, because there are some forms of information you really can't get from anyone outside the organization. If a guy is rehabbing from an injury or Maybe he wasn't allowed to use a certain pitch at a certain level because they thought it would be good for his development or something about his personality. Those are pieces of information you can get from someone with the team. But unless you have a long relationship with that person and trust their information, then you can't always necessarily believe everything you hear. And so it's good to balance that with something from rival evaluators, as as they say. Jeff, do you think that there is any real world influence? Do you think that where a prospect is on BP's list or, or any of the other lists significantly influences that prospect's trade value? I'd like to think no, but you are seeing more synergy between Major League Baseball, Major League Baseball teams and sort of the prospect ranking industry. MLB has their own top 100 show on MLB Network. So does Baseball America. That stuff enters into the sort of the fan and the team consciousness for sure. 
I think also you see more segments on prospects, players down on the farm during broadcasts as well. It's, it's sort of a, a talking point. And that does have an effect. Maybe not consciously. I don't know if, say, you know, Matt Klentak is going to look at my prospect list and say, oh, I really hadn't considered maybe pushing J.P. Crawford to the majors this year. I'm sure they're having that conversation internally and they have a lot more information about these guys than I do. But I think it's it can move the needle in, in I think, sort of maybe subtle subconscious ways. Mm-hmm. All right. Quick fantasy oriented question for George. This is from Mark and he has a fantasy strategy in query, he says, I am starting a 5x5 head-to-head league at my office. I'd prefer Roto, but a lot of the guys I'm playing with are fantasy football players and don't realize the joys of season-long Roto. When I normally do Roto, I always wait on pitching. I almost always get a majority of my position players before I draft a pitcher and rely on sleepers, streamers, and injury replacements to fill out my pitching staff. My question is whether or not this strategy will work in head-to-head, or should I spend an early pick or two on pitching? If I load up on hitting, can I rely on replacement level-ish pitching to win me a category or two and assure I win most weeks? That's a great question, Mark. I I think it becomes a lot more difficult in a head-to-head league to rely solely on streaming starters because you're dealing with such a small sample size every week. Obviously, if you're working the waiver wire and you have a guy who goes out there and you stream him and he gets blown up for six runs in two innings, uh, it's really going to put you behind the eight ball. So really... Uh, If you're looking at a head-to-head league, you're going to have an innings limit where you have to meet. uh, Generally, it's it's something like 27 innings a week would be sort of the general rule, I think. So what I like to do in a a head-to-head league, I like to get one established ace. It doesn't necessarily have to be Jake Arrieta in the third or fourth round, but if you can go out and get a guy like a, a Carlos Carrasco or a Marcus Stroman, someone you can count on to go take the ball and give you a strong performance pretty much every week, I think that establishes a nice sort of baseline for your pitching staff. And then if you want that, what I found to be really effective in a head to head league is to load up on elite relievers. You know, if you can go out and stack Wade Davis and Kenley Jansen, those are going to really shore up your ratios and that's going to give you a solid chance to compete week in and week out. If you want to go ahead and stream, you're kind of insulated a little bit by having that ACE and then the elite relievers on the back end. It becomes really difficult in a head-to-head league to win relying solely on late round pitching in the waiver wire because unless you really hit on someone who comes out of nowhere uh, you're going to struggle to post consistently good uh, whip and era totals every week nobody nobody should stream pitchers as a strategy it's just not good just don't do it <laughs> you can you in a roto it. if you have enough of a lead late well, in the he, season but no here's the thing really. Here, here's the thing about streaming pitchers everybody knows that this is a reasonable strategy that can help you relative to your others if you you know depending on the league you it might adapt to the league but everybody knows it but nobody is getting into a fantasy league to see who can put the most effort into managing it. it they want the point of a fantasy league is to see do you know more about baseball than other people and maybe to some degree can you come up with a an imaginative strategy that gives you an advantage this is not an imaginative strategy this is a strategy that everybody knows and most people don't do it because it's a total pain and so if you're winning your fantasy league just because you're willing to wake up uh, earlier in the morning than everybody else or do more moves than everybody else or invest more labor into it than everybody else you're really only winning because other people have jobs and families and that's not that fun so don't do it just don't do it now here's the thing someone else in your league might do it eh, you know if you lose to the guy who's annoying 
that's you know a perfectly acceptable way to live your life i think to win by being the guy who's annoying i think is a less acceptable way to live your life don't be the one that people hate <laughs> if you i mean look if you if you stream because it's august and two of your pitchers got injured and you're waiting for them to come back and there's nobody out there and you'd have to do it for a couple weeks or for one spot or to get to your innings minimum at the end of the week or something like that it, it's perfectly fine to have roster fluidity but if your entire strategy for winning your fantasy league is to try harder than everybody else, that's just not what people are in the game for. We need to add you as like for the bat signal as like the fantasy sports ethicist. <laughs> Hot fantasy take from Sam Miller. Although I, I think you're, you're right, Sam. I mean, if you're going to try and stream pitches, it's more likely that it's going to blow up on you than you are going to be successful at, at picking which pitcher and which uh, in a given matchup is going to be successful. It's just not a good strategy. I agree with you. All right. Uh, so this is a fantasy-flavored question, although not exclusively for fantasy players. And it's about a player that, George, you've written about or are writing about this week. It concerns Ian Desmond. Julio says, does Ian Desmond have a starting job by the start of the season? And does he perform as a top seven shortstop in 2016? Top seven? It's very specific. Is top seven a thing? He's a he's in a seven team league. <laughs> yeah, I guess that makes sense. That's, that's right. oddly oddly specific. It is. It's a it's every format's a weird format you find in fantasy leagues. No one has a just a normal uh, league these days. But yeah, I think he does. There's a good chance he finishes as a top five to ten uh, shortstop this season. Obviously, we talked a little bit about this on the latest edition of Flags Fly Forever that. It's always tough for guys to make the transition. Let's say Desmond signs with an American League team. If he does, we always talk about guys who come over to the AL. They struggle initially um, whenever a hitter changes leagues. There's always a little bit of an adjustment period. We saw it last year with Troy Tulowitzki when he went from Colorado after spending nearly a decade in the NL over to the American League. Uh, He really struggled. So sometimes you see that with some guys. So I'd be concerned if he changes leagues. But if he stays in the NL, you're looking at a guy who his contact rates have really dipped the last couple of seasons. He's striking out a ton each of the last two years, and that's not a trend I see reversing. The speed's declined. He'd been over 20 steals in three straight years prior to dropping to 13 last year. So I'd be worried about the declining speed and contact rates more than anything. But if you can live with a 240 to 50 average, I think he could still challenge for up to 20 home runs. And that's going to be a top 10 shortstop in in today's game. Even with all the young guys, like you talk about Carlos Correa, Corey Seager, Francisco Lindor, Addison Russell, Xander Bogarts, even with those guys, I think he still has a chance to be a top five shortstop this year if he lands in the right situation. By the way, if you're playing your league for money, then all those you know ethical issues uh, go out the window. You can stream all you want if it's a if it's a league that you are playing for money. Now, I would say that that doesn't necessarily mean that you can you should do this in every money league. If you're in a league that you know you put ten bucks in for fun to give it a little bit higher stakes. That is not a league you are playing for money. So still don't stream. But if it is a league that you got into because you think you can win some money and everybody else got into it because they think they can win some money, well, now it's a completely different situation. Now you're a, uh, you know, now you're a capitalist and capitalists can do anything because all that matters are the shareholders. Didn't we move on from that question at some point? <laughs> now, now, as to the as to the ethics of as to the ethics of signing Ian Desmond, that's a really complicated question. It's, a, <laughs> it's an effectively wild tradition for Sam to answer a previous question after we after we move on to another question. 
All right. So one more for Jeff before we do the play index. And it is from Kevin who says, I've been going to minor league games, low A Midwest League since I was a kid. When I was younger, I just appreciated going to a baseball game. As I've gotten older, the quality of play and lack of familiarity with the players combined with the overly family-friendly atmosphere has made the experience less enjoyable. But since last year, I've been getting more interested in the prospects and scouting aspect of things and so have tried to come back around to minor league ball from that perspective. I bought a ticket package for the local Midwest League team and will be going to about a half dozen games this year. With that in mind, do you have any pointers for how to get the most enjoyment of watching these games with more of a prospect perspective? I can't really tell the difference between guys who might have a shot of moving up in the ranks and those who don't. I know I should look at things like their age compared to the level and getting better at recognizing pitch types would help me as well. I've read Ben's series on Grantland about scout school and Kylie McDaniel's intro to scouting series from last year on Fangraphs, so I'm vaguely familiar with the concepts. To make a long question short, too late for that, how can I get maximum enjoyment out of watching baseball in the low minors? Don't go on camp day for starters. I guess you've already locked into your to your six games. If there's any Thursday 10 a.m. games, you probably don't want to go to those. I will, I'll just sort of echo what uh, Kevin Goldstein and Jason Parks used to say on Up and In because it was very good advice. It's sit behind home plate. I don't know where your actual ticket is, but if it's a Midwest League game on a early season night, you'll probably be able to move there without too much problem. I imagine, depending on how fascist your ushers are at that stadium. Talk to scouts before the game if you can. Uh, Remember, they're there to do a job, so they may not be particularly interested in talking to you. Some inevitably will because scouts like to talk and get their take on guys. Guys maybe they've already seen this year or who they're looking at and just sort of an overview of what their process is. You can do that before games, after the seventh inning, usually when the radar guns go away especially if it's the second or third game of a series, they'll start to talk a little bit too. But as far as looking for things, it's all about getting different vantage points of the players. So if you want to really focus, if there's a big starting pitching prospect coming to town that you know about, eh, sit down the, if he's a right-hander, sit down the third base line and look at him from sort of uh, on 90 degrees, sort of on his open side, look at his mechanics, look at him from behind home plate. How does he hide the ball? How does the ball come out of his hand? Uh, does he slow his arm speed down on his secondaries? It's the Midwest League, so he probably does. You know, stuff like that. Just try to figure out. It's 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 a puzzle. You gotta look at. You're looking for patterns. Why do things work? Uh, it's it's low minors baseball too, so you gotta be careful. A guy can, especially on the pitching side, but this is true for hitters too. You know, a guy can sit 88 to 90 there, maybe mix a couple below average breaking balls in, and just dominate that league. So you want to look for major league tools. What is what jumps out at you? It's the kind of thing like is. A little bit reductive to say you'll know it when you see it, but the guys at that level, the really good players, they'll stand out. I would just say it's, I go to way more minor league games than major league games at this point, obviously. And the sort of minor league stuff, the Dizzy Bat race, the mascot race, the shooting fish out of a slingshot into a big net, whatever they do between innings, that kind of stuff can get a little annoying, certainly, but I would say just just let it sort of wash over you. It's part of the experience. And you'll get some you get some honestly weird things at minor league games, especially in, in A-ball leagues like the Midwest League. I think you have to sort of enjoy the absurdism of it because that's going to be inevitable. Hey, uh, Jeff, I have a question for you about talking to scouts. So if I go to a party and I need to figure out whether the – I mean, I don't want to talk to someone who you know hates talking to me, right? Like you, 
you look for cues that a person is not actually interested in talking to you. And those cues would be like, oh, well, you know, he or she stops making eye contact or seems really focused on the drink, on her drink or is really focused on uh, talking to the person who's uh, standing next to you instead of you or is uh, looking for a way to get away. Right. So there's all or, you know, it's just sort of orienting their body away from you, whatever. There's all sorts of ways that you can tell that a person is or isn't interested in the conversation you're having with them. Scouts, though, I the tricky thing is that they're all oriented exactly the same way. They, they all are looking at the field. They're all f- paying attention to the field. They're all writing down things as they do it. And even if they're really into talking to you, um, which presumably happens sometimes, they're not going to turn their body and make eye contact and stop the work they're doing. And so I have always found it very hard to know if a if a scout is at all interested in uh, me uh, interacting with them. Uh, and, and I've always found that, like, no matter what, my conclusion is always after two seconds, oh, this guy does not want to talk to me. So how can you tell by the body language? If, if the body language is so consistent between the willing and the unwilling interactors, how, what do you look for as a sign that, yes, it's okay to keep occasionally bringing something up or it's okay to occasionally ask a question or something like that? Um, I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. The most gregarious scouts I talk to, their eyes are always on the stopwatch and the radar gun in their book even if they're chatting about whatever. I would say you got to, yeah, it takes a little touch and feel. And some guys, they might be chatty early and not so much once the game starts. You might say something that annoys them and they shut down. It's like like being at a party. <laughs> if your, if your uh, opening line isn't great, it might go downhill from there. They are at work, but they, they're in that job because they like talking baseball. And I, like I'm as guilty of this from sort of my point of view when I'm at the stadium, especially if I'm covering... Uh, a Mets affiliate because I've done that for a few years now I will have people and you know, I'll say on Twitter oh, I, oh I'm at the I'm in Binghamton or I'm in Lakewood watching Savannah which I guess is now Columbia and I'll have guys come over to me like people that have read my work here or there or just want to talk about Mets prospects or listen to my podcast and I and I try not to be that guy that's just like focused on the field but you really have to understand they're doing a job and you might even best off like don't talk to them during the innings I would say uh, you know, between innings, maybe the notebook goes down, maybe their cell phone comes out, maybe they'll get a little chatty. As the game wears on, they'll tend to get chattier too. And I would say if you're going to try to improve your own knowledge of of prospects and of scouting, maybe the first six innings you try to do some stuff on your own, some of the stuff I outlined earlier. And then you can ask them specific questions about guys, especially if it's say it's the, the starters already out of the game. Hey, I noticed he did this or I noticed the curveball flattened out in the late innings or something like that, they're more willing to talk to, I think they're more willing to meet you halfway if you show that you put in a little work or you have a little knowledge. Because 99% of the time, it'll be some Yahoo and his family sitting behind home plate. Oh, who are you scouting for? Blah, 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 blah. You know, oh, did you see this guy? What do you think of, of this? Like from a very sort of like surface level, like, oh, you scout for the for the Orioles. What do you think of Manny Machado? Like, oh, he's good. And they'll, they'll pull that trick. But if you are sitting there in the Midwest League and watching a top, you know, if you're, let's say, I think who's in the Midwest League this year, because it's not a league I cover. Let's say young Cubs pitching prospect X, because there's probably one of them, like looked really good for the first six innings. Like, oh, talk to him about young Cubs pitching prospect X or find out what team he's covering instead of what team he works for. Because if, if it's a, say it's an Orioles scout, he doesn't necessarily see many Orioles prospects unless he comes across them in his in his league and team coverage. So we might have way more interesting things to say about the Pirates prospects. All right. Uh, Sam, you have a play index? Sure. So my play index is about pinch runners. Uh, Michael Bauman today wrote about 
Logan Morrison, who is extremely slow, large, and uh, somehow pinch ran six times in two months for the Seattle Mariners this year, uh, which led him to look for the least likely pinch runners who pinch ran over the past whatever number of years. So then I started thinking about the other side, the pinch runners who pinch ran a lot and just simply weren't good at it. So first of all, pinch running, a little bit of background, uh, pinch running is sort of an odd strategy that didn't hardly exist for decades, which I don't know why. But like in the 20s and in the 30s, there would only be, you know, at most a couple of hundred pinch running appearances in the entire season across Major League Baseball. And basically every decade from there, it went up. And in the 50s, in the 60s, it was still fairly rare. And even in 1972, it was common, but it was it happened about 900 times uh, throughout the entire 1972 season. And then in 73, and it's, it went up quickly. And then 74 went up very quickly. And from 73, well, basically from 74 to 1980 was the golden age of pinch running. In fact, the uh, top seven seasons in history for total pinch running appearances are those seven years from 1974 to 1980. Uh, from 72 to 74, the instances of pinch running went up uh, almost 50%. Uh, and then it, uh, after 1980, it, it started going down kind of sort of just as progressively from the 80s to the 90s to the 2000s. And last year, in 2015, there we were back to pre-1972 levels, the 41st most uh, pinch runner friendly year in history. Although slight, uh, maybe notably, maybe not, uh, it has gone up slightly in the five years leading up to 2015. Uh, so maybe it's back in the upswing. Anyway, so that's pinch running appearances. And so I took uh, the top 500 pinch runners in total pinch running appearances. Basically, to get on this, you had to have pinch run at least 35 times. I took those 500 guys, I put them into a spreadsheet, and I wanted to see who was the least effective pinch runner of all of them. So first, uh, in case you're wondering, the king of pinch running in terms of total volume is a guy named Matt Alexander, who was a utility player for the A's, for the Pirates, I think for a couple other teams. And he was basically the guy that the A's used as their pinch runner immediately after the Herb Washington thing uh, failed miserably. And he was fast like Herb Washington, although not not as fast as Herb Washington, fast like Herb Washington, but had an actual baseball background, baseball experience. Uh, and so uh, presumably would have been better at getting jumps and reading pitchers and not doing boneheaded things on the bases uh, like Herb Washington was. So uh, that was one of the reasons why he's at, he's at the top. But he pinch ran a lot. His manager actually with the A's then went, I think I, I, think I have this order right, then went on to the Pirates and brought him with him. So he was used in a similar way. And Matt Alexander pinch ran 271 times in his career. Nobody else is over 200. He is the undisputed king of pinch running. Matt Alexander. Now you know. All right. But that, he's not the reason. So I took uh, all these 500 guys. I added columns for stolen bases per game, per pinch running game, uh, runs score. And and it, now to some degree, this is a little bit affected because some of these guys would stay in and get a seconded bat. But most didn't. Usually if you stole a base, it was during your pinch running round. If you scored a run, it was during your pinch running round. If you were caught, it was during your pinch running round. So so I added columns for stolen bases per game, pinch running, runs per game, pinch running, stolen base uh, success rate during your pinch running appearances, caught stealing per game, 
uh, although that's not going to be a factor. And then uh, a column for plate appearances per game so I can see who was most valuable as a guy who you could at least keep in and have him bat later in the game if it if you needed to. So there's a lot of guys on here who, in their pinch running chances, uh, didn't do very much. There are a bunch of guys who never stole a base, who pinch ran, you know, uh, Mudcat Grant, for instance, uh, pinch ran 89 times and never stole a base uh, when he was pinch running. Maybe that was his era. As you can imagine from a guy named Mudcat Grant, uh, he, you know, did not ever have an upper deck card. But even some more recent guys never stole a base. And some guys never even attempted to, now that I think about it. Uh, Joe Horland, 50 appearances, never attempted a steal. Uh, but there are even there are even worse guys. And so I think that I have settled on the clearly the worst pinch runner uh, of all time. And so before I tell you who it is, I want to ask all three of you. By the way, Brad Osmus pinch ran 36 times, just so you know. Now you know that. Brad Osmus. Presumably because he was uh, catching for even slower catchers. I would imagine that all of his pinch running just about came pinch running for a catcher. But anyway, that's not that's not the point. So I want to ask all of you guys, if I were to chart fame on the x-axis and badness at baseball on the y-axis. So the guy who is the worst and most famous would be at the top right hand corner of this of this graph. Right. You understand that? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, uh, if I asked you who is the most famous worst player, you would probably say maybe you would say like Mario Mendoza, for instance. But Mario Mendoza is famous for being bad at baseball. So we're going to take out guys who's famous specifically that they were bad at baseball. We're also going to take out guys like Michael Jordan or Danny Ainge, guys who were horrible at baseball. Uh, but are only famous because of things that they did that had nothing to do with their baseball career. Uh, They're not famous in any way for playing baseball or for anything that they did while playing baseball. And then maybe controversially, I'm also going to throw out guys who are famous for their post-playing careers like Billy Bean or Tommy Lasorda, uh, guys like that, okay? All right. So we're looking for guys who are the most famous for baseball reasons, for baseball playing career reasons, and also the worst at baseball. Do any, do you guys, who would you say that is? Who do you think is famous and horrible? Uh, I was going to say Joe Carter, but mm-hmm. maybe that's more of a most overrated than horrible. He wasn't actually horrible. He was just a, a guy who always had big RBI totals and wasn't actually that great a hitter. Yeah. Joe Carter, though, productive major leaguer added value. You know, if, if you did an It's a Wonderful Life for Joe Carter's playing career, you'd find a lot of people that were sad that he was never born. <laughs> yes. So uh, we're looking for worse than that. I mean, we're looking for Mendoza-level bad or, you know, Mathis-level bad. Maybe it's Mathis. I don't know. Vince Coleman? Oh, no. Mathis is famous for being bad, I think. Vince Coleman. Okay. Vince Coleman. He uh, eh, He's probably too good. I think Vince Coleman's too good. But all right. Vince Coleman. He is famous. I mean, I have no idea. <laughs> all right, so I'll tell you who I think the answer is to this to this question. I think the most famous horrible horrible player uh, is Glenn Burke, uh, who is not famous for being bad. He is famous for two things. One, he might have invented the high five. He at least is often credited with inventing the high five. And there are documentaries written about, uh, uh, made about him and the high five. So he's pretty famous for that. And he did it in a baseball game on a baseball field. So he is not disqualified for non baseball reasons. Uh, He is also extremely famous, or eh, not as famous maybe as he could or should be, but fairly famous for being something like the first semi-openly gay baseball player, right? Like his teammates knew, although the public did not. 
Yeah, so the news that he was, or the public awareness that he was, was from his post-playing career. I don't know if that disqualifies him, according to your I don't think it does. Rules. No, I don't think it does, because uh, he is famous for, uh, you know, what he was doing as he was playing. Uh-huh. But anyway, whatever. I'm not disqualified. The high five. You can have the high five. <laughs> Just the high five's enough. So okay. Glenn Burke is actually extremely, you know, fairly famous. He's probably maybe one of the 50 or 60 most famous baseball players from the 70s. Not that he's like a household name, but fairly famous and horrible. I had no idea how bad Glenn Burke uh, actually was at baseball. Glenn Burke played four seasons for the Dodgers uh, and the A's. He had a career batting line of 237, 270, 291, an OPS plus of 57. He was a well below uh, average defender, according to uh, what total zone, and he had uh, minus 2.4 wins above replacement. So in basically a season and a half's worth of, of games, uh, he was, uh, you know, a, a minus two and a half win player. Uh, he, you know, was arguably the worst player in baseball at the time. But that's not why he's famous. He is famous for two reasons that have nothing to do with him being horrible. I propose now that we remember him for uh, for being horrible as well. And the way that I uh, I propose this is by declaring him the worst pinch runner of all time. Okay, Glenn Burke, worst pinch runner of all time. He has one of the lowest stolen bases per pinch running appearance rates of anybody in history. He stole two bases in his 38 tries as a pinch runner, 38 uh, appearances as a pinch runner. So 38 times they put him on base and said, you run. And twice he managed to make his own way to another base. He has one of the very lowest. In fact, out of these 500, he has the ninth lowest rate of runs scored per pinch running appearances six out of seven x seven out of eight times in fact almost seven out of eight times that they put him on base and said now you score he failed he only scored uh six times in those 38 tries he has of people with uh with plenty of caught stealing appearance uh, uh plenty of stolen base attempts he has arguably the worst success rate. He was caught five times. Now, remember, he stole twice. He was caught five times. So five times they said, you score, move ahead on these bases. And he said, I'd rather I'd rather go back to the dugout. And so he tried to steal and was thrown out. He is the only player who is this lowly ranked in all three categories. He was a disaster of a replacement on the bases. Glenn Burke, inventor of the high five, Quasi first openly gay baseball player, worst pinch runner of all time. It's the trifecta. <laughs> I can remember a recent example. Clay Buckholtz, the Red Sox used to pinch run him a lot because he was fast, but he had just no pitcher base. fast though. <laughs> yeah, but he had like yeah. no base running acumen at all. Like he'd go out there and and it'd just be a disaster. He'd almost be worse. I think he'd he'd be a below replacement level base runner. So I can think of that. Is there any? numbers there on him because i remember he was just terrible every time they would try and use him in that type well, of role so he he did not have 35 so he he's not right. on our he's not one of the 500 most if if i were not live i could figure out in about two minutes how many pinch running appearances he had and right. how he did but as a um, red sox fan i remember it was always a, a total disaster whenever <laughs> they would try and do that yeah we did a play index one time on pitchers pinch running i i believe or maybe pitchers base running uh, and yeah, they're not, you know, they're not good. It, <laughs> no. The pitcher, the pitcher pinch running uh, is not so much about trying to get good <laughs> running. It's about, I think, trying to keep your other pitchers from getting hurt. 
you're basically saying, hey, you have normal adult athleticism and we're not worried that you're going to break if you have to run hard and everybody else we are because pitchers are not fast even fast pitchers are not fast no like the prevailing narrative was clay buckles was faster than anybody else you had on the bench so why don't you throw him out there and every time they would try it it would just backfire horribly it felt like Mm -hmm. yeah the Mets are like that too they always said that carlos torres was the fastest player on the team (laughs) but never came into pinch that's kind of one of those stories that only gets written in march i feel like yeah (laughs) Yeah, I actually would like I, last year in March, we collected every uh, emergency catcher in baseball, all 30 teams emergency catchers. I actually would be interested in finding out what every team's uh, emergency pitcher pinch runner is, who he is. Toronto's would probably be Stroman. He was a former infielder. So, yeah, I would think that in a lot of cases it'd be a former infielder. But as with emergency catchers, it's actually much less about who can catch the best and more about who you're least worried about getting a foul tip off the thumb. And mm. Stroman, I would bet, especially because Stroman doesn't regularly run the bases as an American leaguer, I would bet that they would not put Stroman on there. My guess uh, is it'd be that guy who we made fun of for not knowing his name, Tilapia, or whatever his name was. What was his name, Ben? Talera? Tal- 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 <laughs> oh, the, the Blue Jays reliever. Tapera? Tapera, Ryan Tapera. Yeah. yeah. It's probably him. It's probably always him. He's probably the emergency catcher, too. For the Mets, I can only hope it's Bartolo Colon this year. Oh, yeah, it's gotta be. You don't want to risk any of them. Like all, like all four of their other starters are all very good athletes, but you obviously don't want to risk them, and you can't risk a bullpen arm in case you need the bullpen arm later in the game. So that just leaves Bartolo. Yeah, yeah pretty much. Yeah. Well, Harvey might Harvey might talk himself into the game. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> all right. So you can support our sponsor, the Play Index. Go to baseballreference.com. Use the coupon code BP. Get the discounted price of thirty dollars on a one year subscription, and you too can look at all the records of every pinch runner in major league history okay we will end with one quick one open to anyone it comes from eric who says what kind of prospect package would kenta maida's contract return if come july 15th there are no longer questions about his game translating to the majors and he's already established as an iwakuma caliber third starter and to refresh everyone's memory Maida is signed forever. He's he's signed for eight years and $25 million guaranteed. Of course, there are many incentives. He gets a 150000 bonus for making the opening day roster, and then he gets a, a million if he makes 15 starts, and then a million if he makes 20 starts, and $1.5 million for every five-start increment after that, and then there are $250,000 bonuses for 10-inning increments after he gets to 90 so on and so forth. There's also a $1 million bonus each time he is traded. But even so, his incentives, even if he maxed out everything, he would still be making something like $10.15 million each year. So he can earn up to $81.2 million in bonuses over the life of the contract. So if he comes out and pitches well for the first few years, establishes himself as a viable major league starter what sort of trade value does he have to the dodgers essentially how much surplus value is there in that contract well a lot and look at the the going rate for let's just say he's a number three that Mm -hmm. seems like a solid major league pitcher type ian kennedy who i don't think in by any of our definitions qualifies as the number three pitcher got 70 million and it's maybe not an awful contract maybe it is i don't even know anymore (laughs) some (laughs) of the money that got thrown around this offseason but the problem with yeah. something like that is it's almost, in a weird way, it's almost like a pre-arb kind of thing. 
he's a pre-arb type player and you just get year after year of arbitration level money. And there's no comp for that. That's something I was thinking about this offseason related to sort of Jose Fernandez and Matt Harvey, if they were to be dealt with that many years of team control left. There's no there's no comp for it. There's no comparable player you can look at and say, oh, well, he was worth that in trade, so Harvey or Fernandez would be worth that. You really don't see those kind of guys get dealt until they're about two years out with David Price. I guess Shelby Miller, I don't really think he's on that level. Maybe Shelby Miller is not a bad comp for the made a deal. Trevor Bauer when the Diamondbacks dealt him, but that was for probably different reasons that they did that. Yeah, and Eric, who asked this question, made the comparison to Iwakuma and said if he's as good as Iwakuma, and Iwakuma signed a contract this offseason, he only got $12 million guaranteed uh, with some team options tacked onto that, which is not a lot. Of course, he is much older, and he has durability concerns, but that's another thing that might apply in this situation too, because if there were structural irregularities that turned up during the physical, then that's something teams might still be worried about in this case, even if the first few months of the season go fine and there's no sign of impending injury, if there's some sort of underlying issue that makes people worried about how he's going to be a few years down the line, then it's possible that they still might not pay him what the going rate would be for him otherwise. Yeah, I think you touched on this a little bit when you started talking about why free agents don't make more money in general recently. If Maida just doesn't pitch for whatever reason for a couple years of that deal, for most teams, it's a, essentially a rounding error in their total payroll. I just think the risk would be so high that you, you wouldn't be able to get a substantial return like you, uh, Jeff touched on the Shelby Miller deal. I don't think you'd get back a guy like Dansby Swanson, that caliber of a prospect. I just don't think a team would be willing to absorb that much risk that Maeda gets hurt and doesn't give them anything that they'd really be able to do a whole lot in, in terms of a trade. I, I think his value is somewhat limited because you're just never going to know uh, with him physically. All right. So we will end it here. Jeff and George, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us on. Really appreciate it. Yeah, glad we could have you. And people can find Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Paternostro. You can find George on Twitter at George Bissell. And you'll be hearing a lot from them over the next several weeks. They're getting some good guests lined up. So please be sure to listen to their second segments in the upcoming team previews. And as I mentioned, we will start with the Phillies tomorrow. And at the end of each episode, we will announce what team is coming up next. So if you want to follow along, if you have your BP annual at home and you want to read the annual essay before we talk to the annual essay author, you can do that. So that is it for us today. You can continue to send us emails at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. As I mentioned, we will still do these email shows to break up the team previews on the other four days of the week. And you can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild and rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes. We will be back tomorrow. Hey.